I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And as we get started this morning, I think we're going to be here for this week and next week. And so you may not see how this ties into our series with the Ten Commandments, but I think at least by the end of next week you will. And so, if you missed it, last week we began a new series over the Ten Commandments, looking at how they are uh, like the precursors, the steps toward joy or ruin, And, and we're unpacking that over the course of this series. The Ten Commandments were given to us for our good and God's glory. They impart freedom and joy, and they are not a means of earning God's favor and cannot make us good. Let me repeat that. They are not a means of earning God's favor and they cannot make us good. And if that seems like a strange statement, why did God give them to us? Well, we said he gave them to us for our good and God's glory. Why can't they make us good? Because we are not good. Romans 3, there is no one that is good, not one. No one seeks after God. And we say that prior to faith in Jesus, when Christ would remake us and bring us from death to life, at that point, yes, there are good people. Only so far in as Christ has made you new, Right? The commandments cannot do that. The commandments cannot make you new. They cannot put away past sin and, and make up for that. They can lead you to joy in life afterwards. So they do not make us good, and they will not lead a society to be moral. They will not lead a society to be moral outside of the rebirth and new life through faith in Christ. The Ten Commandments are not our society's answer, our country's answer to morality and goodness. Because they cannot be kept apart from Christ. And I hope that becomes evident as we walk through them. God, I can't go there. They will not lead us to be more, but when they are pursued through cross-purchased, blood-bought freedom, they are pillars which give structural integrity to life of worship. Just as these pillars right here hold up those of you seated around the balcony, thank goodness, the Ten Commandments prop up a life of worship and lead to a life of worship only through Christ-bought, blood-purchased freedom in Him. So they are good and they are right and they will lead us into godliness as we've been transformed through Christ. Which brings us to Luke chapter 15 in the prodigal son. And so, this week you have six points. We are only going to cover the first three of those. You're going to have to come back next week to get the other three. To be continued. So just know up front, uh, for you type A people, who that is going to bother if you don't know that in advance. 
That's where we're going. Luke chapter 15. And, and here's why two weeks on this. As I dug into this, I've preached this before, I've read this before, I've heard it preached before, I've sat through Sunday school lessons on this parable, and the more I dug into it, the more I uncovered. And not I, but I discovered what others have uncovered. I'll put it that way. And there's so much richness to this text. I felt like we need to sit in it for a moment because it prepares us to get into the commandments two weeks from today and begin to look at number one there specifically. So, that being said, let's jump into Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. And this is Jesus talking. This is a parable, so it is a story. It is not a real-life account, but an analogy, essentially, that Jesus is giving to us and giving to the church uh, and, and using to teach truth in this moment. And the main listeners that he's talking to, the main people he's communicating to are the Pharisees, okay, in the audience directly around him. And he's already covered in the first two parables in chapter 15 a lost sheep and a lost coin. And, and he's getting to something that is more and more valuable and saying when you lose something that is lost and you regain it, there is celebration to be had in that. And he's drawing a line directly to God the Father that when someone now lost comes back from that, there is celebration to be had. And so we enter into the parable in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. So it is about three people, a man and two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So let's stop there for a second. Because in those first few verses, what we see is our own rebellious heart. Our own rebellious heart in this son. We miss so much because of our culture here. We see that this is probably a rebellious son. We see some dishonoring, maybe some disobedience in the father. It's to the extent to the audience that Jesus is talking to that this scenario is unthinkable to them. Okay, for a younger son, Okay, the oldest son has the prominent spot in the household. Okay? It's the way that it was. For the younger son to come to the father and say, give me what's mine, I'm out. He's communicating to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish I was not part of this family. I wish you were not here. I just want what you can give me, and I'm out. I wish you were dead. And it's more than that. It's an utterly selfish request. This son is sitting under the benefits of decades of work by the father to get to where they were at right now in this time. They, 
there is much that they have as a family, as a household. You see at the end of the story in the celebration that is given, I mean, this is a family that is rich with material things, prominent in their area. And so for the son to come and to, say, to demand of the father, give me what's mine, what all you have built up, what all you have provided for me, the hard work that you have invested, the people that you employ, the workers that you provide for, I want my share. That's not his to ask. Now, in our society, it doesn't come across the same way, but I, I wouldn't, whatever age you are, I would not recommend going to your parents and saying, I want my share of the inheritance right now. Even then, it just wouldn't go well for us, right? It just would not work out well. And what it shows is we don't care about what it's taken to get there. We just care about what we can get out of it. It's utter selfishness. I want what's mine. I don't care. And, and what he's asking for to the audience that's listening he deserves, he deserves to be in that society, okay? I'm not saying this how it should play out now. Or we go by different rules. What he deserved in that society was to be beaten for his choices, for his disrespect and the shame that he is bringing on his family. See, this is where we miss so much of the cultural implication of this story. This is an honor-shame culture. Okay, so for, for a son to shame his father like this has reaching implications in their society, in their village, to the people around them. He's bringing shame on his family by doing this. And he's disparaging the name, like in my case, Pauline, the family name, the family reputation. I mean, this is going to get out. They don't have Facebook. They don't have social media. But listen, this will get out. And it will bring shame on the family. And he does not care about that. So often our sin is what we seek that fulfills us at the expense of hurt, heartache, and the heaviness that it inflicts on others. When we engage in sin, we disregard the effects that it has on the people around us. It's what I want. I don't care what it does to you. If I know you hold that opinion, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and if it hurts your feelings, you deal with that. Right? I I'm going to make this choice, and if it ruins your family, you're going to have to deal with that. But I'm in it for me. Our sin, we don't see the heaviness so often, or we don't care, the heaviness and hurt and heartache that it inflicts on others, that's their problem to deal with. And listen, parents, you know this as well as anybody does, and I know it now as a parent. When your children make choices di directly, I'm not talking about the things that inadvertently affect you just as a parent, but the things that they say directly to you and do directed at you to cause hurt or try to cause hurt, 
they don't think about that. They're reacting many times, or they're intentionally pursuing it sometimes, right? Not thinking about what it does to the heart of mom and dad. I had to sit down with one of our kids earlier this week after a night of struggle. And the next morning, we circled back around to a conversation, and I said, do you know how that makes us feel when you say things like that? No. Here's how we feel. Let me lay it out for you. This is how we feel. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, that our sin has reaching consequences beyond just our lives. Even to the people in this room outside of your family, what he's communicating to his father and his family in this moment is, I can do better than you. Your provision for me is not enough. It is not good enough. I can do better for myself, whatever that means. I can do better for myself on my own than you can for me here, than you've done for me up to this point. I'm out. I've got this. It's a disregard for others. It's a selfishness. It's a not caring about the consequences. It's a shameful request. Here's the deal. Granting the request. Now the father has a choice in this moment. Give me what's mine, the son says. The father could say, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Do you know what it's taken to get here? You better take yourself back to your room and rethink this. And if you want to be out, you can be out. But you're not taking what we've built for yourself. That's what I would want to say. I don't know about you. So for the father to grant the request... Yes, here you go, be on your way. I would have sent him away with nothing. You want to run away? Go for it. You're not taking this with you. Okay, so here's another thing that gets missed on us in this. <laughs> for, for us, okay, if if you go to your parents and ask this. Parents, if you have a child that asks this of you, part of the idea is you go to the bank account or you go to the possessions, you sell some things off, you pull a share out of the bank account and you give the cash that you get from the bank and from the possessions and send them on their way. That's how this would go. In this day and age, there is no First United Bank down the street that you go and get your cash out of. The possessions are held in property and in livestock and in workers in the household. So for him to ask this of his father and his father to grant the request for him then to go out on his own, it's not going to do him any good to take a herd of sheep down the road to the next village that he's going to because that's not liquid. He can't spend sheep where he's going. He needs money from this. And so what he has to do, he has to find a buyer that will essentially buy him out of his share. Kind of like owning a business. You're in a family business, you want out of the business, you've got to find somebody to take over your share of the family business. You've got to liquidate those assets. So then what are you doing? 
you're leaving the family that stays in the business with a new business partner. And you've probably, to get cash for those assets, you've probably sold it at a price that it's not worth. So let's say you own $50,000 in the business to get somebody to come in and buy it into it so they can get something out of it down the road. They're not going to pay you $50,000 for it. Maybe if you're lucky, I guess, if the business has enough promise. But in this case, it was going to be a slow, slow return. And so he's probably getting out of 50000 He's maybe getting $0.50 cents on the dollar, maybe $0.30 cents on the dollar. He's not getting everything that's his, but it's still worth it to him. And he doesn't care how he leaves the family farm and the family and the position that he leaves them in and who he brings in to cover that. He just wants what's his, and he's out. Far-reaching implications. See our rebellious heart in the sun. And by the way, there's an older brother here too. No mention, except for the first verse. There was a man who had two sons. The older brother's job in this moment was to take the younger son by the ear and pull him aside and say, do you know what you've just asked of dad? Uh-uh. No. You're staying, you're working just like I am, you're in this with us. Well, where is the older son? He's not here. We'll get to that next week. So there's shame in the request, there's shame in granting the request, there's selfishness in the hurt that he's bringing on, and the selling of what is there for even just a little bit of what it should be, it's rebellious. This did not happen overnight. This was born in him over time, this rebellion. It did not happen overnight. He didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, I've got it terrible here. I could do far better for myself out there. I'm, I'm going to ask and I'm going to leave. No, I, we don't know how long this has been brewing, but it's a symptom, just like mm, sin for us is always a symptom of the heart. There's always something else going on inside. Are you struggling with anger? There's a reason. It's not just getting a hold of the anger, it's why are you angry? Do you struggle with selfishness? It's not just about being selfish and overcoming the selfishness. It's about why do I feel like I'm the center of everything? I mean, whatever it is that you struggle with, there's a reason, a heart-level issue that drives that, that brings that symptom to the surface. So often we want to treat the symptom and not the heart. Our sin always comes back to a rebellious Heart, what shows on the surface is coming up from underneath. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, we act. See our rebellious heart and then see our slavery to sin. Look at the second part of 13. He gathered all that he had, which was the liquidating of the assets, right? He sold them off, he got cash, 
He gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, time out. He went to a far place. He gathered everything that he has. He goes to a far place. He's starting over, okay? I'm starting over. I'm pursuing what I want. I'm going to build the life that I want for me, and I'm going to engage in the things that I think will fulfill me and bring me the most happiness and satisfaction. And he goes to another place. He starts a new life, and he squanders what he has in reckless living. We're not given a ton of details about that specifically in this text. If you skip to the end and you see a comment that the brother makes at the end, he brings up specifically prostitution. We don't know how he knows that. If he knows that for sure, he had a conversation with the younger brother, maybe at some point, and the younger brother tells him. We don't know. But probably there's some prostitution involved. He squanders it in reckless living. What does that mean? It probably means, listen, if you go to a new place and you want to build a, a gathering of people to follow you and engage with you, probably you're going to do what you think is going to attract some people quickly, right? Throw, new apartment, start to put it in our terms, right? You, let's just say it's off to college or right after college, off on your own, okay? New apartment, I've got my own spot, okay? Now, got to throw a party. We got to get people to come. What's going to bring them? Let's have a party. Maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, probably for sure alcohol. Who knows what else, right? And you put it on and you bring people in, right? Because if you pay for it and you provide it, they'll buy in, okay? This is a quick way to start a life. This is no different for us now than it was for them. I mean, it's the same sort of thing that he would have engaged in in the far land where he was. And he does this to the extent that he squanders his property. And when he had spent everything, because here's the reality, sin promises much, but it continues to suck the life out of us. In the moment, it promises joy and satisfaction and fun and excitement but even into the next day, I don't know, I, I, I can, I'll admit to you right here, I've had mornings that I've woken up where I laid in bed and thought, why did I do that? Why? I hope some people don't know what happened last night. I hope a lot of people don't know what happened last night. So often, what promises satisfaction and joy, even the next day, brings pain and struggle and heartache. It doesn't give what's promised, but rather than seeing that and seeing that for what it is in the moment, we continue to go back to that thing and think, I just need more of it, right? And so that's how he gets to the point where he's at, where he's lost everything. That party and that group didn't work, so I need them to come back. And then night after night or week after week until he wakes up and realizes everything that I have is gone. 
now. Because he sought to top the last experience and the last experience. We watched this past week a movie at our house called Blank Check. It's an old Disney movie. And when I say old, I mean my era old. Not as old as some. Okay? The kid, long story short, the kid gets a blank check. He fills it out for a million dollars, which really doesn't go that far when you live like he did. But he buys a castle for 300000 uh, He puts a go-kart track in. He builds a giant wall of TVs with a huge virtual reality. I mean, he gets anything that he wants right? And that each thing is not enough. So he goes in and continues. He throws a big party at the end. He's supposedly working for a guy named Macintosh. Macintosh, a.k.a. Apple. Macintosh. Dates it a little bit. And he gets to the end of that, and he's supposed to pay the bill for the party that he hired somebody to throw for Macintosh. And he goes to check the balance of his funds and he has $332 left. Not enough to cover the $100,000 bill. Because it's never enough. What we want and what we seek satisfaction in in our flesh is never enough. He squandered what he had on reckless living and had nothing to show for it at the end of the day. You and I, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And hear this, among whom we all once lived, how? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our story. You may have surrendered to faith in Christ when you were five. This is still your story. You may not remember what it's like to be not a follower of Jesus. This is still your story. It may not have played itself out the same way, but if your testimony is, I grew up a pretty good kid raised in church. Why did you need Jesus? If I'm a pretty good kid, Why did you need Jesus? The reality is you weren't a pretty good kid. You may have not done some of the things that other kids did, but by God's standards, the standard of perfection, you were everything but a pretty good kid. And the term pretty good kid, what, what, is happening in that moment is you're looking at other people and you're saying compared to them and compared to them and compared to them, I stand pretty good. How do you measure up to the Father? How do I measure up to the Father? We don't. Why do you need Jesus? Because you can't measure up on your own. 
no amount of time, no being raised in church, no amount of Sunday school lessons or Bible stories or reading scripture at home or praying together as a family will not make you good. Is that hard? I hope not. It might be. It won't. The only thing that makes you good is Jesus. That's your only hope. That's my only hope. Parents, that's our only hope for our children. Your, thank goodness, your hope for your children is not you. Can I say that again? Parents, your hope for your children is not you. Do you have responsibility? Yes. As long as your kids are in your house and under your authority, you have responsibility. But you, the hope for them turning out the way that you desire for them to turn out is not your responsibility. You cannot change their heart. You can lead them and guide them and direct them, but you cannot change your heart. We need to be like the Father in this, that we surrender our children and hold them in open hands before a loving God who cares more about them than we ever will, which means a lot. Right, parents? Because your love for your kids is deep. But the Father loves them more. We hold them open-handedly and say, God, I will do what you've called and I will take the responsibility, but the, at the end of the day, it is up to you. You're in control. You're sovereign. Alone. Your children are in better hands with God than they are with you. It's a good spot for them to be. See our slavery to sin. It is not enough, and it only leads to despair and brokenness and emptiness and loneliness. At the end of the day, the friends that he had gained and the lifestyle that he had built for himself took everything that he had and left him with nothing. Literally left him with nothing. He has nothing to show for it. No relationships, no people, no connections, nothing. Here's how we know that. He began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. No one's there to look out for him now. They all wanted what he could offer and wasn't sticking around for anything else. And so when hard times hit, they're gone. They're out. Done. When he doesn't have anything else because he had wasted it, he has nowhere else to turn for a Jewish son to go and be hired off to a Gentile is shameful. For a Jewish son to go and be hired off to a Gentile to work pigs is shameful. Doubly. For a Jewish son to go hire, be hired off to a Gentile to feed pigs and then to eat what the pigs eat 
is triply shameful. And then not only is it shameful for him, but shameful for his family. You did what? Will knows as much as anybody what it's like to be around pigs. Can you, yes? And if he could, if he could elaborate for us, and, and maybe some of you have spent time around pigs on a farm. It is not pretty, yes? This is not a good spot to be in. It's helplessness, it's hopelessness, it's I have nothing else to show for my life. What am I going to do? And then he comes to his senses. But when he came to himself, verse 17, see trust in God. When he came to himself, when he realized his situation, how many of his father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. When he has nothing else left, when he feels the emptiness of his sin, and has nowhere else to turn, and has finally come to the realization that this will not deliver what it promised, what does he recall? He recalls the goodness of his father. He recalls the love of his father. He recalls the generosity of his father. Not only towards him, but he looks. When it says hired servants, this is like the lowest class of people in that setting. You had slaves, and slaves are not as we think of them in, in our sense, early U.S. history slaves. Like these are members of the household that are cared for by the family. Yes, they work for the family, in the family. They're more like hired workers. Okay, then you have the, the workers of the family who kind of live maybe out on the property, not in the household, but, but that are, are part of the greater household. What he's talking about here is the hired workers, like you would stop by Jay Weezy's uh, in the morning and there's maybe a guy sitting outside that says, hey, I'm looking for work. Do you have work for me to do? I, I'm, man, I'm willing to, to sweat and, and to put in some work. Would you hire me? They're day laborers. They come, work for the day, get paid, and go home. Even those guys that work for my dad, they have more than enough. And I'm sitting here wallowing with nothing. It shows the generosity of his father to care for those that he's not required to care for. He's not required to treat those workers at that level. And the son remembers that. He remembers the character of his father. And here's what I want you to see before we get to next week. Faith in God, faith in Jesus is not I'm going to go to him and run to him and turn from where I am. Repentance, as we would say. And here's where I found correction in myself this week. I've said from this spot many a times, if you would repent and trust Jesus. What I'm inadvertently doing that I didn't understand in that moment is putting condition upon forgiveness. Trusting Christ, in this case, trusting the Father, happens 
when he realizes the Father's character and puts the plan in place to go to him. And it's, it's nothing more than that. He's the only place that I can go to, so he's where I'm going to go. I'm going to put myself in his hands. And then he actually does that. There are steps that, that take. So faith in Christ brings grace and forgiveness, which leads to repentance. They all come together, and you should not have faith and grace without repentance. But God is not saying, okay, if you'll repent, then I'll show you grace. No, it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Yes? We have to remember the way that the Father loves us does not change. The whole time, this is getting into next week, I apologize. The whole time the Son is gone, the Father, because this is God the Father, He knows when He's coming back. He knows that He's coming back. And He's waiting. Because He loves the Son. He loves the Son while the Son is squandering everything He's worked for. He loves the Son even when the Son has brought Him shame. He loves the Son even when the Son has rebelled against Him. He loves the Son even when the Son is out for Himself. He loves the Son when the Son stands for everything against the Father. Guys, that is how the Father loves us. Before we ever come to faith in Jesus, when we come to faith in Jesus, now on the other side of faith in Jesus, he does not love you any more or less now than he ever has. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus for you even in your rebellion. And that in your rebellion, he chased you down and said, remember me. Remember my character. Remember my generosity. Remember my love. All of these things that you've sought to put trust in and seek satisfaction in that have let you down, remember me. I've not gone anywhere. And guess what? My love for you has not changed. Church, there's nothing that we can do on the other side of salvation that will increase God's love for us. He loves us exactly the way that we are. Exactly the way that we were when we came to faith in Christ. If you've come to faith in Christ. And he loves you so much that he refuses to leave you that way. Those are not my words. Those are Max Lucado's words, I think. You will not earn more love from the Father now or ever. And it's that love and that understanding that leads us into repentance and into a transformed life lived out for him. So if you're sitting here this morning, if you're still pursuing sin as a means of bringing fulfillment and satisfaction, may God's grace remind you, you will not find it. 
you will not find it. You will wander and you will squander everything. Possessions and relationships and time. And you will bring for yourself loneliness and hurt and emptiness. You will bring hurt on others. You will not find what you are looking for. If you would come to the Father, you will find grace and forgiveness that has been purchased for you without qualification. All you bring is you. You don't clean yourself up before you come. You don't earn his acceptance. Jesus has earned that for you. If you're sitting here today and you have placed faith in Christ, stop working to earn God's love more. You cannot. And remember what he's brought you out of and let that produce in you joy and pursuit of him. And stop trying to earn it from him. He's already given you everything. Let's pray. Father, God, we are reminded of your goodness. Of your grace towards us. Of your open-armed love, unconditional. Not conditioned upon if we will or when we do. But as we are, because of the purchase that was made for us on the cross of Christ as you came as Jesus and bled and died after torture and execution and then rose from the dead to reign on high you have purchased for us new life and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and hope and peace beyond anything that we could find for ourselves God and for the soul right now who is lost and who feels the weight of their sin and the shame that they sit in, I, I, God, will you remind them that all of that can be lifted in a moment of trust? That there's not escaping it. That there's not evading it. There's not making up for it by our own choices and actions. It is simply coming to you broken and bankrupt knowing that you have purchased everything for us and will freely give to those who trust in you. So God, I pray that they will find freedom and forgiveness and joy in your presence and come in wholehearted surrender to a God who loves and cares and has provided. God, may we rest in you. I pray these things in Christ's name.